Hello everybody, thanks for downloading the latest episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast, recorded in lockdown conditions due to the ongoing situation, so do bear with us with any sound issues you may experience. For the benefit of those listeners joining us for the first time, Fantasy Animation is a podcast and website dedicated to the discussion of fantasy storytelling and the medium of animation. Each week we publish articles from academics, animators, fans and critics considering the latest in the worlds of animation and fantasy, and we are constantly on the lookout for new voices to join in the conversation and write pieces for us on subjects near and dear to their own hearts. You can find more information on how to contribute, as well as access our archive of editorials, reviews, creative reflections and sequence analyses at fantasy-animation.org. But for now, do enjoy the show. The future. The polar ice caps have melted, covering the earth with water. Those who survive have adapted to a new world. Hi everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast. I think this week I remain Alex. Uh, And I'm 100% certain that I am still Chris. Well, that's good to hear. Um, This week, uh, we're taking a little pause from our feel-good fantasy animations. Um, We're going to dive into... um, um, a cult classic, let's call it that, um, Waterworld, a film with a slightly infamous past and an infamous um, sort of reputation, but one that I had a lot of fun watching. I don't know about you, Chris. Yeah, it was um, a film that I'd not, uh, for my sins, not seen before. And it's one that's sort of, I suppose, not, not been erased from film history, quite the opposite, in fact. But um, it certainly has a reputation, as you say. Uh, and so I sort of, uh, in many ways, was excited to, to sort of see and hear what all the fuss was about. So I'm excited to, to talk about it. Yes, but um, we it won't just be the two of us. We have our very special guest, and I'm ex- very excited to talk to him about it, Simon Brew, on the podcast this week. Simon is a sort of serial uh, journalist, magazine uh, editor, um, and perhaps most famous for running the Film uh, Stories podcast and magazine, um, and a self-confessed uh, Kevin Costner fan, I believe, Simon. Yes, yes. And uh, I, I mean, how long do you want on Kevin Costner? We we, we've got weeks, yeah. I can do that. Five minutes, we can shut up and go home. I can do. Well, I can do it in song. I can. Uh, I, I can do a medley of his greatest hits, just in some kind of rhythmic, kind of the greatest showman style. Would that work? Oh, it, sounds, it sounds perfect. Favorite Costner? Why don't we start with that? Oh, my favorite is Field of Dreams, but then, like most films that are favorites, they tend to be the ones that mean something particularly special to you, and that one meant something particularly special to me. So, I'm not really snobbish about best films and favorite films and things like that. I think your favorite is your favorite, and that one just always got me for an abundance of reasons I've bored people to death with in the past. Cool, cool, cool. My I, Tim Cup is has a similar relationship. Oh, it's just great, isn't it? It's just great. Uh, the best rom-com of the 90s, I'd say, Tin Cup is. Um, so smartly written. Uh, I, learned, I, I mean, Rene Russo in that film as well. Um, ne- I mean, she never really gets the credit for the extraordinary collection of roles she put together in the 90s. And they were oftentimes just what could have been dismissed yeah. as supporting roles. But she always gave them something. You look at Ransom. You look at In the Line of Fire. You look at Outbreak. Uh, and you look at Tin Cup. I'm a huge Rene Russo fan as well. Terrific. Well, okay, so we delved into Tim Cut there, but we're here to talk about Waterworld. Yeah. Uh, Simon, you're the you're the film stories expert on the podcast for this week. So let's. Could you give the readers or the listeners, I should say, um, a a potted sort of synopsis, if you can, on what the story 
or the conventional story behind this movie is that makes it kind of an interesting one to chat about? Well, the, the film itself actually has a fairly straightforward narrative tale to it. It's the world has been, the polar ice caps have melted, the world has been flooded, the search is now on for dry land. And I, I mean, it's, it's, entirely fairly described as a Mad Max ripoff on water. I think that is the best way to contain it. I think one of the screenwriters on it admitted it's a Mad Max ripoff effectively on water that you have this unnamed central character who is credited as the mariner and it's the ongoing search for dry land in a world that's full of water. I mean, you, I mean, you can write that down on the back of a beer mat, really. Um, and that that's the guiding idea behind it. But what turned it into Hollywood infamy, really, was, I, I mean, being blunt, was the money um, that this was at a, in 1995 when it came out, it was by distance the most expensive film that had ever been made. And I think the record holder at that point was actually True Lies, which had taken over from Terminator 2 Judgment Day. And but Waterworld's production budget came in in the end at 175 million dollars, which now is just chump change for a blockbuster movie, yeah. really. But at that point, to spend that amount of money on a single movie was regarded as insane. And so the story of Waterworld is inevitably wrapped up in the story of the finances of Waterworld. That that's why I think that's probably why we're talking about it today. Why it's still talked about 25 years later as much as it is the film itself. Well, no, I, I agree. And I think your point about an idea that's, that's able to be written on the back of a, uh, of a, of a beer mat is, is interesting because when, when I was watching the film, I was thinking exactly that in terms of this idea of it being high concept, the fact that it is, as you say, right in the slap bang in the middle of the 1990s. Um, I think one of the interesting things when I was reading a little bit around the film is its relationship to sort of um, merchandise, perhaps, or tie-ins and synergy and the accompanying novelization video game theme park attractions all this sort of stuff it seems in many ways to be uh the sort of quintessential in, in lots of ways actually the quintessential 90s hollywood blockbuster if you're kind of reading around it but then there's so much else on top of it you know as you say the escalating uh, budget the alleged sort of onset rivalry between the director and, and and costner and all these sorts of stories that have helped mythologize the film a little bit more than and sort of take it beyond um, a standard Hollywood blockbuster, if, if such a thing exists. Yeah, it, it landed at an, it, a slap bang in the middle of a change in Hollywood as well, that here was this hugely expensive practical film that everything you see in the film was built or was done. There's very little in the way of computer effects in it. Uh, two years before, Jurassic Park had come out at what? A th it cost about a third, $65 million Jurassic Park cost to realise, cost to make. And that was a film that revolutionised Hollywood thinking, that revolutionised merchandising far more than Waterworld ever would. There also, it, I mean, it was Waterworld was then followed a, a, year, a year later by Independence Day, And what those films changed, as well as a reliance on effects and on computer driven visuals in the middle of blockbuster movies, was it took the reliance on the movie star out of it that up until that point, um, it was if you were going to spend an awful lot of money on a big on a big movie, you would hire a movie star because at least you would get an opening weekend. And what Jurassic Park and Independence Day proved uh, far more than Terminator 2 did, I'd argue, was that you don't need a star, that the special effects are universal. 
the visual effects are universal and they sell irrespective of whether you happen to like or not the leading star of your movie. And in fact, you see it's come a little bit full circle with the Fast and Furious films, which have driven us back, no pun intended, towards a lot more practical work, although there's quite a lot of digital stuff in Fast and Furious as well. But again, Fast and Furious films don't sell the movie styles, really. They sell the car chases. So Waterworld, it was an anomaly, even at the point, really, as it was coming out, that in 1995, if you'd have asked a movie studio, will you spend $200 million on a film headlined by a movie star and not by a special effect? I think that would have caused far more meetings than it would have done a couple of years before. I was going to say, I mean, the, the mid-90s context there, the, the as you say, it's it sort of positioning just before these sort of latter, or the, certainly the, the late 90s work, um, the disaster movies or the sort of um, post-disaster US movies, I think more broadly. So, uh, as you say, Independence Day, Deep Impact, Volcano, obviously Twister as well, 1996. Yeah, um, yeah. Armageddon, these are all... Um, yeah, as you say, driven in lots and lots of ways by the effect. The effect is the star, and certainly Waterworld, the the whole the title of the film, the the sort of the the premise, the set pieces, and actually its relationship to digital technology is one of the things. If we think of Hollywood as then moving into CG or moving um, perhaps uh, more head head first or, or sort of diving into um, CG, don't forget. I mean, this film comes out in what July, and it's only a few months before the November release of of Toy Story. Obviously, you mentioned Jurassic yeah. Park, and so you have these. And actually, I found myself when I was watching the film thinking about the stress it places on physicality or materiality. On, yes. You know, the film I was and I was trying to think, is it is it that the film suffers because it's not CGI? I don't I don't think so. I think it's um, perhaps the invis- there's a lot of invisibility. The stuff that is is CGI is perhaps aside from one of the, the big kind of fish creaturey things. Um, a lot of it is maybe invisible. It's erasing things or it's just it's creating a virtual backlot. It's not creating a central um, set piece. Everything seems to be, um, as you say, kind of physical or, or practical. It doesn't feel weightless. It feels weighty. And I, I like yeah. that element of the film and how that maps onto, you know, you, you have lines in the film about dry land. I, I've seen it. I've touched it. And it seems very much to be yeah. about. Um, I feel that when I watch the film, it seems like I can reach out and, and, and touch it and, and and walk on the sets in a way that the sort of virtual imagery of Hollywood at the time, perhaps I, I, it's, it's less tangible or more immaterial. But you look at the what the big films were in 1995, just to contextualise it just a little bit more. And, it, and it, there, even there, there's a hint of a change of the time because the biggest film of the year at the global box office, once you take in international and American takings, was still Die Hard 3, was still Die Hard with a Vengeance, which did have some um, digital effects work in there, um, most notoriously in a moment where Bruce Willis walks around oh, yeah, uh, yeah. With, a, with, with, with a sign that had a racist message digitally added to it so uh, just because the safety of him shooting the scene without that that's why they went down that road but you look at i mean toy story is number two apollo 13 was that year goldeneye was that year batman forever seven uh jumanji these were the top 10 movies 
of that of that particular year once you take worldwide box office into account. In fact, Waterworld will come in at nine in the top ten. But what's in common with lots of those is there's quite a lot of traditional Hollywood star power in there. And there's only a little bit of creep with something like Batman Forever of the, the reliance we were going to see on franchises and brands. And then, of course, Toy Story at number two was the, the grenade lobbed into the middle of Hollywood. Um, but Toy Story, nobody saw coming. Really, I mean, Toy Story was. I, I'm sure you've covered this an awful lot in the in the past, but Toy Story was the gamble, the absolute gamble that Disney um and ahed over, and Pixar was struggling just to get it out of the door. It couldn't render it. It was the cost of it was obscene. It, no one was sure it was going to work. And Disney that year put all its chips on Pocahontas. In fact, Pocahontas went into production uh, alongside The Lion King. And Pocahontas was the A picture that all the best people were put on Pocahontas because that was the one that was going to be huge. And The Lion King, it, it had incredible people on it, as it proved. But that was the one where the expectations were lower. It was the same with Toy Story as well. So, I mean, it goes back a little bit to that old adage of nobody knows anything. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to when it comes to making films, when it comes to predicting films, but it was a very turbulent, um, changing, changing year for Hollywood. That was, and we talk about the thinness of of just the idea, really, that just just the high concept of the pitch. And you look down the list of films again that were coming that year. I mean, number fifteen was Heat. And Heat was infamously pitched by Michael Mann of walking into Warner Brothers and saying Al Pacino, Robert De Niro. Um, $65 million and Warner Brothers just signed the check pretty much on the spot. There's your film. <laughs> yeah, well, basically, who would say no to that? I mean, the high concept, um, the, the, the high concept one that changed it really was Twins, if, if you want to go a bit further back. That um, the, the, the pitch for that was the poster, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Danny DeVito, Twins, and they signed the check on the spot. Mm-hmm. So Waterworld, uh, I, I mean, he says, I, I segued enormously already, we're only like 10 minutes in, I. But Waterworld, the, the, the idea that it was just a, a very <laughs> a, a very simple high concept pit was was to its benefit really in terms of getting it made but it is worth putting in as well that waterworld was originally conceived in the 80s as a a much lower budget production it was never supposed to be a film of this size and it was only over its decade or so in hollywood development that it turned into something else so i've given you loads of strands to explore (laughs) love it yeah absolutely let's pick pick one i I think i think one of the things about thinking about the film as well as the stories that surround the film because it's hard to to watch it now without this sort of, you know, meta narrative of, you know, this infamous quote unquote Hollywood flop, quote unquote, even though it's probably neither of the two properly. Um, but it's something, you know, it's part of the law of the movie. And and it's almost like the film is 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 partly that because it's sitting in this, you know, transitional liminal period in, in Hollywood's history between different types of selling strategy, different types of marketing strategy, and indeed different types of filming strategy. Um, you know, w- water is an interesting um, testing ground for sort of CGI in the way that, and this film kind of feeds into that in that a lot of the stories that I seem to find, whether they're anecdotal or hypocritical or, or real, are about the struggle to film or or not film the water, the the, the sort of dodgy, um, you know, uh, vistas of water that are occasionally interspersed between actual vistas of water, and the and the stories of actors nearly drowning on physical sets, and and when to build and when not to build. The film seems to sort of um, nicely help us to dramatize or articulate our 
changing relationship to you know what we you know i guess our second it's called the pro filmic versus the sort of visualized that the, the um that the you know the real celluloid shot on camera versus the cgi special effects to put in post and pre i think the thing with um, with hollywood and water though is is during that era really it was it was once a decade someone would have a go and hollywood would have a big go at it then they'd they'd remember why they didn't have a go just because it's hell so you went from jaws in the in, in the 70s to the abyss in the 80s and and you just wait long enough for the memory of just how difficult it is uh, to 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 just erase from your head to have another try. Although the director of Waterworld, Kevin Reynolds, just before he did Waterworld, did a film called Rapa Nui, which he filmed on Easter Island, and they were so isolated making that film that they could only get supplies to the cast and crew delivered to them once a week. Um, and so food and drink were running out on that one. So to go from the, the, what was supposed to be his small project in between Robin Hood uh, and Waterworld uh, to, you know, uh, hunger just to try and make a film uh, and then to Waterworld. I mean, it, it was it was a little bit of the proverbial frying pan into the fire. But in terms of what, uh, in terms of how much was in camera with Waterworld, I think that's the thing that... As just as a film to sit and watch, that is the thing that continually lifts it for me. That mm. I, I, I don't think it's a vintage Kevin Costner film, and I say that as a died in the wall Costner fan, but I do think it's an enjoyable one. And I, I do think the physicality of it is there from the start, right the way through. And there's little bits of digital work, and, and I think it's quite telling how much they stand out because yeah. the rest of it is so, so real. Really, I mean, there's, there's no way. I, I I wish I could come up with a, a breathtakingly intelligent way to say that. But they went and did it. They went and shot. They built these massive sets out on the water. They would drag them out to sea. They would do the filming. And one of the smaller sets infamously sunk. That would cause huge headlines in the Hollywood trade papers about what a disaster mm. this film was going to be. And the budget ran over, et cetera, et cetera. But the one thing I think is pretty irrefutable is whether you like Waterworld or not, they went and did that for real on a scale on water that I don't think has been done since. I mean, you look at what they did with Aquaman. They didn't even try it, did they, really? And Aquaman, to be fair, I, I'm not a mad fan of the film, but I do think it's beautiful to look at. Um, but I don't often think... I, I didn't watch it and think I was necessarily underwater because the water of Waterworld is miserable and choppy and grim and horrible. And it's just like, it just reminds me going to the seaside in Britain when I was a kid. You know, it just it just felt a lot more tangible to me. Well, I mean, I if we're thinking about all of the context in which we can we can sort of place the the film and and the obviously the blockbuster, the high concept um, blockbuster. We've got the mid nineties um, uh, blockbusters that are veering towards disaster um, in, in all kinds of ways. Um, we've got uh, obviously the CG production. If Hollywood is sort of gradually and progressively moving, so it's interesting you mentioned the abyss, which is often cited amongst um, effects histories as you know one of the most important. Uh, moments where we get uh, an accurate simulation of a sort of watery creature and uh, the film yeah. you know, does the film film suffer or does Waterworld suffer or feel different um, because it, it, it isn't sort of heavily CGI we have and I think maybe that's where the the story and actually what what Alex said the lore of the film that surrounds it this this narrative that surrounds the film I think has, has sort of helped really emphasize the practicality and physicality and the weightiness of the sets as you say it's this it's this grim it's this grim portrayal of, of uh, well, I, all, as I was watching it, I was thinking he must be cold. 
he must be cold as he as he, <laughs> as he uh, and I think I think the last time I felt I think the last time I felt that was um watching uh, the I think it's All Is Lost the Robert Redford film where yeah, that's a terrific but that's, film. That's what I was thinking, and that sort of element of survival, and and there's and that, and that the the film's narrative about survival or or extinction, this post-apocalyptic narrative, feeds quite nicely into the 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 extra textual stuff around the film about it's trying to stay afloat, uh, ha, ha, all this sort of stuff. Um, the other context I was thinking of, and maybe this takes us a little bit, well, I don't know, a little bit towards fantasy, is is as I was watching it, I was thinking Cutthroat Island, which is of course 1995. Um, yeah, yeah. Rennie Harlan, who's interesting because of his, yes. his um, uh, he went on to direct, did he go on to direct Deep Blue Sea? in 19- Yeah, Deep Blue Sea had followed four years later, but he, he came to Cutthroat Island off um, Cliffhanger and The Long Kiss Goodnight, so this, wasn't it? He, Those are the other ones he's yeah, making around Yeah, this is 90s there. action cinema par excellence, and obviously he has a relationship yeah. to the Die Hard franchise, which you mentioned mentioned. And, and, yeah, and yeah. so I was thinking about the swashbuckler genre, which which this film, and, and again, reading up on Waterworld, it sort of seems to suggest that we, we don't return to that genre. We don't, you know, go back to the high seas until something like Pirates of the Caribbean, which opens up a whole, uh, again, a sort of post-millennial relationship between Hollywood and the theme park ride and, the, and all these sorts of things. So it seems increasingly that Waterworld is perhaps... And, you know, it's more than just a um, it's more than just a film that did terribly or, or one of the things, one of the ways that it's been sidelined in critical, certainly visual effects. Um, it just seems to be, quote unquote, the greatest flop in the history of when actually it seems more than that. It, it seems to do a lot of stuff. Um, uh, and so, yeah, I was thinking of its, it's mid 90s position seems really important uh, and, and significant to the way that we understand the film as a whole. There's a couple of points in there. Um, one of I mean, Cutthroat Island is a whole different, interesting example because I, I mean that was being made by a company that was going out of business and <laughs> fast. Um, and at that point, I think the last big pirate movie had been Polanski's, I think, in 86, and that had failed. And any, I mean, pirate films were box office, uh, were box office poison until Pirates of the Caribbean came along. And again, it's easy to, it's easy to overlook just what a huge gamble Pirates of the Caribbean, the first one was. Um, but yeah, I, 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 it's pretty deliberate that Waterworld didn't veer that way. And I think Cutthroat Island, I mean, it was originally going to be michael douglas i think and that might have transformed it into something a little bit different um but that was a, a whole adventure in, in its own right that just just went wrong in the case of Waterworld, the the, the narrative about money um again we, we we come back to it again it's quite telling really that that it does come back to that i read an article at least three four articles uh, a year from people who just put in the notorious flop Waterworld or one of the biggest flops of all time, Waterworld, what, you know, this massive box office turkey Waterworld. And that's just false. Uh, it, it, whatever you think of the film, the financials, and there's an argument about how invested audience members should be in the financials, really. But, you know, we're here and I, I've, I've been invested and interested in this for a while. Um, the, the actual financials show that it was a profitable film, um, but that doesn't make as good a story, really. But again, it comes back to, I think, why this film keeps coming up again and again and again and again, because factually, Waterworld ran over budget. 
factually, Waterworld was the most expensive film of all time at the point it was released. And factually, it didn't break $100 million at the American box office after all of that. It did about 88 or something like that. And so it wasn't the huge juggernaut that all concerned were hoping for. However, it was and is a profitable film. And it's not my money on the line. So, you know, I, I, there's, a, there's a limit to how, how hard I'll argue this point because ultimately it comes part down to the fact that it did actually bring in the money and part down to how massive corporations do, um, do their accounting, which I can get into a little bit if you want me to go down there and, and talk about just why it wasn't a flop. Um, but it, it it comes down to, I think, that remains just wrapped up in the story of this particular film. Well, I think I think why it was perceived as a flop might be the question to ask, because as I've, you know, it, it did event, it did make money. But my understanding is it made money sort of post cinema sales. So perhaps this would like to know sort of what the, the mechanics behind that is. It's not unusual for films to make money post cinema sales. There, there was an argument. I think it was Kevin Smith who put the uh, who just explained that the a cinema release is ultimately the trailer for the video or subsequent DVD release. If you look at something like The Bourne Identity, if you look at the first Austin Powers film, they were massively profitable films on their theatrical release because by the time you've taken the cinema's cut out of it, the distribution cost, the higher cost of distributing outside of the home country of the film, everyone takes a slice and the studio's looking to get, if a film grosses $100 million worldwide and the studio gets its pulls on $40 million of that, that's, that's quite a good result really, certainly in the 90s. And as a consequence, it was quite hard for any film of any size, really, to make its money back entirely off its theatrical run. I mean, Die Hard 2, when that we're talking Rennie Harley just before, that was, what, 1990? And that infamously cost $75, $80 million to make, which, again, no one had spent that kind of money on a film at that point. And I remember reading articles, I've gone back and seen some of them, talking about how can a film that costs that much money ever make its money back? Um, And it didn't on its cinema release, um, because it couldn't, because at, at that point, the distribution model and the expectations of the return of a diehard film, they, they just weren't going to deliver, what, the 300 million or something it would have needed for that to fully break even at the box office. But that's not what the movie business was or is. And th- you, you look at a whole collection of films that are, have gone on to be hugely profitable, and it's the home release, it's the ancillaries, it's the merchandising, it's, it's all the bits some bobs that go around it you you look at every time you're on a plane and you see a film showing that the, the movie studio's got money for that when you see the film come on bbc one or something like that the movie studio's got money for that there are trains in theater well usually there are trains going up and down the country now the way you can sit and watch a film that's been to you on the train and that's a revenue stream for the studio so that in itself isn't unusual what was um unusual in the midst of Waterworld that made it slightly different was it was pretty much profitable from the off because of a corporate takeover that was going on in the midst of it all that the parent company behind Waterworld Universal Pictures was being sold to another company at that time and as a consequence of that and I'm no um, I'm no accountant so you know take this with, with a little bit of salt 
the parent company of Universal at the time, MCA, was bought by the Seagram company. Seagram bought 80% of Universal. And part and parcel of that, I, 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 I dug into this a long time ago, so it might be a little, I might be a little bit rusty mm-hmm. on it. MCA's previous owners, Matt Schuster, I think it's pronounced, agreed to hold on to $1 billion of Universal's then debts. And part of that was the production cost of Waterworld. So by the time it came out, Universal Pictures had a new owner who basically hadn't paid for the film. And it was estimated that Seagram, uh, which was Universal's new majority owner, had put something like 10, 12 million in to Waterworld, and that was it. And then the film goes and grosses, what, quarter of a quarter of a billion dollars worldwide. So from that point on, thanks to some accounting shenanigans, it was profitable from the off for the studio that actually released it. Now, in ordinary times, had that takeover not been going on, Waterworld would have taken years to make its money back, but it would have made its money back. It was a big Kevin Costner movie in the 90s, even though his star was slightly big. Well, it was beginning to fall at that point. It was greenlit off the back of Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves and The Bodyguard and films such as that. His biggest commercial successes and they knew universal knew that a big kevin costner summer movie even if it did badly was going to do quite well and i think that's pretty much what it did it did quite well and it returned a modest profit off its theatrical release and then by the time you factor everything else in it's a profitable film i mean no one was clamoring for a sequel but it absolutely wasn't and isn't a flop yeah, well, it seems like the idea of scale then, which which traditionally within, I think, academic discourse and, and, and cultural perception of the rockbuster is that it, it is rooted in scale in whatever form it's it's sold on the basis of, of it being an event. And then and your point about, you know, the films becoming the trailers of, of um, kind of the post-cinema afterlives of these films. And, and this idea of the pre-sold pleasure, which again supports economics you have the film that is the sequel to the original that was originally based on a television program i'm thinking of mission impossible is like the quintessential yeah know, yeah with, with crews quite literally of the posters or anything to go by the face of the franchise um but we have this idea of this event and and, and so it seems like again the way that Waterworld has sort of um fallen into the this sort of blockbuster discourse is simply because it was it was big and epic and, and and the idea of scale is connected to it in all kinds of ways because the set was huge the um you know the the, the budget went over that everything about the the film was was big um and so the way that spectacle and spectacular imagery and scale and uh, and this sort of lavishness of of these big blockbuster movies and their their accompanying audiovisual sort of sensations um again it seems like it seems like waterworld should be very much part of this conversation beyond um it being dismissed as something that that was this big disaster you know that's why the simpsons joke about the waterworld video game is that has consolidated what what people think about and audiences think about that movie that you put lots and lots and lots and lots of money in play the game for five seconds and that's it game over okay so this is one of those moments where we pause the podcast um and stop talking as we were then yes. and start talking live well not live but we're, live. Always, we're always live yeah. and not live this is it's hard uh, to record in advance of yeah. the moment that you're recording sure this isn't a live stream no, so that's um, not what we've paused the podcast to talk to you about. no though. we have paused the podcast to talk to you um listeners uh, and potential contributors actually um about the blog element of the website so if you visit uh, fantasy-animation.org you'll see that we run a, a weekly blog so the blog itself uh, pulls in different voices from lots of, of different places whether you're an animator creative practitioner 
academic, uh, whether you've been to a film festival, an academic conference, uh, whether you are, uh, you know, been to the cinema, seen an animated fancy television program. Uh, we'd uh, love could to be an animator who's just produced a new work yes. and wants to talk about it, reflect on it um, creatively. It could, it could be, be um, someone who's trying to get into film journalism who wants to have a, have a go at writing a review. Um, you could just be a fan and love a particular uh, th- uh, subject matter and you'd always want to talk about it. Yeah, we've had a lot of people kind of get in contact via the website. Um, we have a little comments function, so if you send a little message to us um, with your potential idea, then we'll have a yeah. conversation about commissioning in it. There's a tab, isn't there, at the top that says something like contact us yes. and, and submit form. Click so on you that. can contact us. Uh, and also you can follow us on social media, so give us an at on Facebook, send us a message um, so give us an at on Twitter or send us a message on Facebook uh, and we'll get in touch. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, it would be great to, to kind of publish some of the new work that's being done or, or um, hear from people that perhaps wouldn't have the opportunity to publish elsewhere. Um, get in touch. Please do. Otherwise, we'll just get back to the show. Let's. The thing, though, is I mean, ultimately with a, a film in the build-up to its release, and we saw this with Titanic as well, what the trade press was and is interested in is does it make good copy? And in the build-up to the release of Titanic, all the same cliches were coming out that this is going well over budget, this is going to be a disaster, this is huge, this is blah, 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 blah. And and it's a good story when a huge studio film is going wild, is going heavily over budget, mm-hmm. uh, appears to have all sorts of problems, and people just want to read the story. I'm the same. I, I'm interested in film productions that go well. I'm interested in film productions that go badly. I, I'm just curious about the, the magic, I, I believe, of putting a film together. And so in the case of Waterworld, by the time it came out, its place in film history was secured, I would suggest, before anyone actually saw a frame of it. Because the stories had dominated the trade press in the build-up to its release. It was called, uh, it was being dubbed Fishtar, wasn't it? And Kevin's Gate. And Costner had come up against this before with Dances with Wolves, where he went off and did what the trade press were describing as a folly. He, At the peak of his powers, he turned down the hunt for Red October, went to make Dances with Wolves, took this gamble, made this foreign language, uh, basically a film of which a third of which was in a foreign language. And, uh, and, and he emerged triumphant from that. And so there's also an element I'd suggest of the movie star at the top of his powers who was ready to be shot down. So all these things were coming together with the movie. And again, it's interesting, isn't it? Because we've been chatting for, what, half an hour about this, but we're not talking about the film. We're talking about mm, the story yeah. around the film. And I think because of the way Waterworld was reported on before, during and after um, I think that just has informed the narrative around it. And I interviewed the director of the film, Kevin Reynolds, about a decade ago. And he says he remembered going to the press screening, for the first press screening of the film, and walking out and overhearing someone say, well, that's a shame, that was quite good. Because it just didn't fit the, it didn't fit the story that some people at that point wanted to write. You know, so there was all that going on around it. And then in the midst of it all, there was the human drama of the second blow up between its star and its director. And that also inflamed this already hot topic in the Hollywood trade press. And that that became part of its infamy in the build up to the release again. Yeah, it's it's an interesting. I, I think that's the, the the other bit of the meta narrative. I do want to talk about the film, but I, I let's just continue on with this sort of thread, which is the, the other bit of the meta narrative seems to be this thing of you know, um, Kostner is out of control, you know, movie star out of control narrative, which again is a sort of one that seems to have been 
uh, played out in the trade presses over and over again in various releases. Either the brat director is out of control, a la, um, you know, Heaven's Gate, or the star is taking control and therefore derailing the film. And this seems to be a nice sort of toxic combination of both in terms of the behind the scenes stuff. Am I right? Yeah, I, I, I think it might be slightly the opposite right. in that it's not that he was out of control. I think it was he was he was too in control. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. I think that was probably it um, because the story because Reynolds and Costner were best were best friends at one point. They'd worked together on Fandango in the eighties, and then. Um, Warner Brothers, Morgan Creek Productions, it was, used Kevin, the bait really of getting Kevin Reynolds to direct Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, to lure Costner to that project. And it's pretty well known they fell out after that, that it, Reynolds didn't sign off the final cut of Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and was not in the edit room as the final cut was put together. Then they made up, and then they came to Waterworld, and they had an even bigger falling out in the midst of it and around the time of Robin Hood Prince of Thieves and the fallout there I remember reading a quote from a studio insider that said because this was just after Dance of the Wolves won its Oscars um, it's still there's still an Academy Award winning director called Kevin on this picture and you just like, oh, okay. And th- th- it is true that mm. Costner, I think it was after Revenge. Revenge was the last film at that point he felt he hadn't had control of and that it didn't go quite the way he wanted it to go. And so subsequent to that, he was producing the vast bulk of the films that he made. So he was always that involved. And it's not alone for a movie star with that. If you put Harrison Ford on a project, he will come in and he will expect, and and rightly, expect to have his say on the film and he will shape the character and he'll shape the narrative. And it's the same with indie films as well, et cetera, et cetera. But Costner was a, a Hollywood power player at that point. And he was the reason, ultimately, if we're being blunt, the film got made. It was the reason the checks got written for the film. And at the point the film started to go off off piste, if you like, that it was going over budget and that Reynolds and Costner had slightly different ideas of which way it was going to go. There's only one person who was ever going to win that fight. You know, the then biggest movie star in the world and the director. And and it, it was just an uneven fight on that one. And it, again, it made good copy. And I don't get any sense that Kevin Costner is an easy person to work with. I can't. I've never met the man, so I can't say one way or the other. It is worth pointing out that Reynolds and Costner reconciled again and worked together on the min- television miniseries Hatfield and McCoys, which Reynolds then directed. And they seemed to get along a lot better on that one. But then there was less water. I presume that <laughs> might help. I don't know. <laughs> Always the useful way of repairing relationships. Yeah, yeah. Keep things dry. <laughs> um, yes. Well, indeed, yeah. And it all seems to feed into to, to the sort of wider story. So to, to to sort of redirect things and and focus <laughs> on the film. Um, yeah. I I hadn't seen it in oh, I don't know. I think I probably saw it as a, as a sort of teenager on renting it from Blockbuster once or twice uh, when it was out, but I haven't seen it since. And the only actually the abiding memory I have is going to Universal Studios and seeing the spectacular. Um, stunt show, which I believe is still going. Yeah, it's, adding, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Adding to that insulary um, sort of stuff you were saying earlier, that thing's still going live and well, and and um, and is a really great show. But that's sort of what I was going to say. I was going to sort of put my fantasy hat on for a second and start trying to talk about the film in terms of what it does well and what perhaps it um, has problems with in terms of on-screen stuff, and particularly in terms of the aspect of the, of the of the world building going on. So we've got this high concept story of of you know a land a world without a land a world of water and what i was struck by watching it 
from the opening uh, sequence is the, the sort of gag almost with the Universal logo, where yeah. it, it sort of it goes into the, the the world on the Universal logo, and the world slowly the land disappears, and we have this this featureless landscape of water. And it made me sort of think about something that I then thought about for the rest of the movie, which is it's very difficult to to build a fantasy world when the number one feature of this fantasy world is that it's featureless. Um, essentially, what you've got here is a, is a barren landscape of, of sea. And, and the film does a lot of interesting things to try to sort of build, you know, a world. And whilst, whilst you know, I'm sort of, you know, a huge fan of these sort of 80s high fantasies that build these sort of lavish uh, landscapes by highlighting the topography of everything, you know, from, you know, characters run from deserts to lush jungles. And it gives this great sense of sort of, you know, contrast and, and sort of spectacle in landscape. Well, none of that can be achieved here in Waterworld because the landscape is is the lack of landscape. Um, yeah. For me, the best bit is the sort of first 25 minutes where we have this mad yeah. floating island um, yeah. where what we've got is a sort of celebration of sets and, and yes. sets become spectacle um, in a sort of Wizard of Oz-esque way. And, you know, it's, it's not, it's artificial. The artificial construction feeds into the story because the story is of a world artificially constructed on top of a featureless world. And then that whole sequence is really great and then we have problems afterwards so I, is that is that am i the only one that thought the sort of film's main energy was in those sort of first half an hour or does it um still appeal beyond that i would i, I mean i i think waterworld is a flawed film <laughs> um i i i i think narratively you can punch holes in it i think it's too long mm. i think the characters aren't brilliantly drawn really i mean you, you you don't come to the end of them and i always come back to something like aliens on something like this the first time i watched the film aliens i could i walked out the cinema and could have named seven characters off the top of my head um just because i felt i got to know i couldn't do that with Waterworld. i know that he's the mariner but I, ironically i know his name because he's not got a name mm. i think reynolds is a tremendously underrated director of action I do think that, and I think it has a lot of fun with the early setup. And when the action goes on to these huge sets, these gigantic, gigantic sets, and they're clearly doing very difficult stunts, mm -hmm. I think it's really something. And I think later, as yeah. we get to meet um, Dennis Hopper's deacon leading the smokers, I mean, Dennis Hopper was cast so late in the day as well. Uh, I think they, I think genuinely, they just watch Speed. Which is what, which is how he ended up playing the the villain I in Waterworld. Really I don't watch Speed, and then that's yeah, well, quite, <laughs> well, yeah. Um, but I think when they do these big, huge physical action sequences, I really think there's something to them. Mm. Whenever they stop and explain things, yeah. I don't think it helps really because again it's quite simple really what it's actually trying to do i don't remember sitting through the highlights of the mad max series i think there's three brilliant films in the mad max series yeah. and none of them are are weighed down by too much exposition they give you the bare threads of what you need to know and just get driving and do it brilliantly and i think when Waterworld is at its best, A, it, it's moving in some way, that there's action going on, that there's things happening. There's the sense, I think, that when uh, when you arrive at a location, that that location has been working before you got there. I think that comes down to the physicality of it as well. Um, and I, I do, I think the action stuff is really exciting and really good. And also, there's something in it 
in that at that stage i don't think many times since i felt like i hadn't seen stuff like this i felt like i hadn't seen big action sequences in boats i felt like i hadn't seen big action sequences of its ilk or on these huge floating sets as you say so i mean the roundabout way of, of answering you is yeah I, I think there's an argument that it's at its best in its first half hour and i do think it's bloated but also i think there's sparks right throughout the film I mean, there's daft decisions in there. The, the fixation was on the gills, wasn't there, behind the ears and stuff like that. And the digital bits do just strike out quite a lot. Um, but conversely, it, it's doing something at heart, tremendously ambitious, not on a storytelling level, but just on a sheer filmmaking level. Mm. And when it cuts into those sequences, I really do think that that that's something. I, I absolutely, I think the ambition and the ambitiousness of the film is is uh, kind of tremendous. And actually, I hadn't really thought about the issue of world building. You know, how do you build a fictional world on water and give it these, you know, a fictional world needs to have a history. It needs to have characters whose knowledge of it is partial or incomplete. It, you know, a, a ruin suggests that there is a, a history to this world and, and perhaps a, a reason why something has fallen in ruins. What do people fight over? They fight over cultural differences, religion, rights. Does this world have a religion? what are the structures all these sorts of things that are in play that i that absolutely i agree that, that there is a sense that the fictional world sort of began before before we arrived uh, equally i think alex's point about you know that the film itself becomes a, a film about the restoration of a fictional world so the opening universal sort of the playfulness of that where the and i love a bit where the film intrudes into the um into the logo i love a bit of that um so the, the, yeah. the as you say the sort of um, flooding of the universal logo right at the start that sort of playful gesture to um, what's what the situation is that's then matched with the voiceover the future the polar ice caps melted um, it's proper grave yeah. voiceover as yeah. well isn't it it's all the gravel Absolutely. comes out it's the, it's the, and then and then you get the line you know that we need to adapt to a new world and my first note was ah oh, okay so it's you know we can make a, the argument this film is about adapt, adaptation you know it's it's um, the film has to adapt to an era in which there are CGI and all this sort of stuff. I was thinking, but then I thought just kind of practically the building, as Alex said, of the fictional world, how you create a fictional world on, on water, the film becomes about the restoration of a civilization and, and perhaps their, their history isn't that old. It's relatively new and people are still learning the rules of their own world. And they're trying to figure out kind of bits and bobs and they've just created a civilization. And then that gets disrupted by sort of the arrival of a man. Then you learn a little bit about what constitutes um, money and, and capital and, and all those sorts of things. And, and some of it is terrific. And I thought, God, I wonder what would have happened if this one would have, could have been made same year as Pirates of the Caribbean. The the, the range of characters, the sets, um, the some of the set pieces, which often hinge on um, capture or escape or hijack, which I think is is really which is really great. Um, I just wonder whether or not this issue of world building is that then, or, or if the film feels in any way incomplete in terms of its world building, is this because that the film swelled again in scale to, you know, three hours or whatever plus, and then was cut down. And there's a sense that we're missing all this backstory to, to characters here and there that might have fleshed out the world a little bit. 
I, I think it's been proven that we, we're missing a different version of Waterworld by the fact that there are now three cuts of the movie that have been released on Blu-ray. Um, the television cut, Reynolds' original ending for the movie uh, and the theatrical version. I do think one thing we've not done is it's worth contextualising just the, the whole polar ice caps melting uh, and, and that yeah. narrative. In the context of the mid-90s, that was the first time that environmentalism had really bubbled up as a political topic because that was the first rise of the Green Party in European elections was around this time. Um, and so it, th- that that was always part and parcel of, I think, why it got made, that they thought they were hitching a wagon to something that was deemed to be a hot topic at that point as well. And as a consequence, that people would instantly lock, you know, lock into the idea that polar ice caps melt, the world floods. And just just the whole simplicity of the idea was to a degree being played out in newspaper articles suggesting that's the way the world could go at the time. I'm not saying Waterworld is a massive political statement, but I do think there was something in there before it was, no pun intended, watered down. And you can tell that by the original ending as well, that, that, that there was more of a mythos to it, I think, in the, one of the alternative cuts of the movie in that. And I think I can say this because uh, it's the ending that isn't in the actual film. But if you're averse to if you're averse to knowing anything of any endings, it's probably worth doing a spoiler warning here. So here's a little spoiler: the original ending of the film, and I, and, and Kevin Reynolds told me this about uh, again when I, I spoke to him. There's a point at the end where they would have been standing on dry land, and the little girl would have cleared away the grass, and there was and would have found a plaque, and the plaque would have said here near this spot 1953 norgain hillary first sets foot on the summit of everest and the whole idea was the only the highest point on the planet would have been left as dry land the top of mount everest was all you were getting such was the severity of the flooding and reynolds envisaged that to be his planet of the apes moment you know the 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 statue of liberty in planet of the apes and so there was that level of thought that's the point i'm trying to make it whatever comes across in the final cut and it was a big studio action movie ultimately and so the final cut needed to service that more than any other master and i think it did but there was uh there was a broader ecosystem around this film there was a, a more fleshed out world than the one that we ultimately got to see um and i i just think it was just pared down by the demands of it being a studio blockbuster yeah it's an interesting i hadn't, i hadn't thought to talk about that but it's a really important thing to highlight which is this this interplay between science fiction and and you know current science fact i mean you know right now there's this you know the off-quoted thing that people are saying right now isn't it is, is that sales of of contagion are through the roof because everyone's revisiting yes. that movie for it sort of because we run towards things like that for some reason yeah, yeah. That, that, that documentary that was made a few years ago it seems but that that sort of there's a long history of that right of, of these um uh of hollywood harnessing cultural fears of the future um and playing out that narrative for their for everyone's own amusement i mean this is yes. you know uh, day after tomorrow is is the same thing <laughs> later right it's just it's snowy rather than uh rather than um, wet. Um, yeah. But, um, yeah, this I, and I think you, you're right. I think um, that's part of the selling point, isn't it? Is that this is a movie that's tapping into a prescient cultural fear yeah. of the time. 
I, I think with day after tomorrow as well, um, again, just, just a minor segue. Yeah. Um, one, one of the things about that is the director of that film, Roland Emmerich, was said to have absolutely educated himself on the actual science of global warming and of uh, and, and of the freezing of the world, of, of the coming of another ice age. And he knew all this stuff inside out and just ignored it because he knew it wouldn't make the film that, he wanted to he, he wanted to put on screen but yeah. he went and found all the stuff out and worked out what facts to ignore and <laughs> and that, that's part of storytelling isn't it what it, again whatever you think of it i mean day after tomorrow is just a hoot of a film yeah, yeah. um all, again all sorts of problems but wildly entertaining for what it is um but conversely the, there's the the cherry picking of it isn't it you cherry pick the science and and you cut into the bit that you think will most easily resonate with an audience i think once you get to the si- films of this size i i had a question that maybe ties in your love of Kevin Costner slash Waterworld with <laughs> with your sort of work with with magazines. And I was thinking about um, connoisseurship, and I was thinking about fandom, and and obviously the way that and the story that you told about the people coming kind of coming out of the film having already known what it was going to be in terms of this disaster in, in all kinds of ways, and then people come out and say, oh, actually, it was quite good. You know, it was a shame that it's sort of quite good. Yeah. Um, I just wondered, is there a, a sense in which, and I'm. And I and I think I'm trying to think if I've got this right or not. This sort of the rise of sort of like effects magazines generally, and and you get um, effects technology certainly in the digital side from the 80s into the into the 90s. And is there a sense in which part of the reason that I don't know our audience is becoming savvier in terms of effects? Um, there was an LA Times article from May 95 that was based on a sort of um, I think it was a, a, a pre-screening or a, an unfinished cut of the film or something, and the the journalist talks about um, audiences left feeling, quote, unimpressed with the special effects. And I just wondered whether um, there was something around effects magazines, film journalism in the 90s, where people are becoming more and more knowledgeable about special effects and the technologies that are used to produce them. And their expectations are getting higher and higher. And so they're able to make judgments about films in a way that they hadn't been able to judge before and, and actually that's part of the reason maybe the Waterworld um I don't know suffered in terms of its effects because you mentioned earlier that its CG effects do stand out and, and I was surprised um at the end how much the blue screen green screen or whatever looks so artificial but I was I really had just a question about sort of I guess the the, the connoisseurship of, of um, audiences at the at the time and whether or not they are in a better place, whatever that means, to, to sort of make a pass or a judgment on the, the effects themselves. I think um, I, I I don't know. I slightly go the other way on it. I I, I remember when uh, I, I my my favourite film in my teens was Back to the Future Part Two, and I devoured everything I could read on it. And there was a, a making of book that was a bit better than your usual co- cookie cutter thing at the time. And in that direct, its director Robert Zemeckis said, "I don't want people thinking about how things were done until they're on the way out the cinema," because he knew people would think about that. And this was pre DVD extras and stuff like that, as was Waterworld and. So so the actual how films were made was still something of a mystery. And so I, I, th- I think there's an element of that. But also a couple of years later, just to go on a slightly different example, there's a film came out called Air Force One. And Air Force One is Harrison Ford and Gary Oldman and... Um, Director Wolfgang Peterson. Yeah, Wolfgang Peterson. And it, a huge hit movie. And no one talks about the effects 
in that film because the film worked for them. And yet, I would argue, at the end of Air Force One, there is one of the dodgiest digital effects I've seen on a big screen um, in my life, up there with the Mummy Returns ending. The difference is, I think, Air Force One worked better as a blockbuster movie, ultimately, and that's why it doesn't become a conversation point. If you're sat there looking at something and something completely takes you out of the film, then there's a fault with the film. Generally, it's a very crude and simplistic way to do it, but something about the film isn't working. If you can be pulled out of it, that easily really um now of course sometimes effects are so glaring that the the argument doesn't hold and i do think it sticks out just by the contrast between digital and physical in Waterworld. that when it does something digital you do sit there and think oh hang on that's a bit odd isn't it but conversely uh, we're, we're sitting here talking about that 25 years later and i would argue that's because that bit of the film didn't work for you or didn't work for it you know it just didn't feel as real as the rest of it contrast that with air force one go and ask a hundred people did you have any problem with uh with the ending of air force one and don't tell them it's the digital effects i'd be surprised if you get more than a couple who just cite it as as an effects problem so i i think it's i, I think it's quite uh it's both a simple and a complex question with a simple and a complex answer really um but if you're sat there and you're thinking oh hang on um, then, then something's gone wrong with the film. There's a, there's an interesting interplay with that, though, I think, in that that's true. But I also think um, Hollywood likes to present an, a rhetoric of, of believability, I think, which I'm always, as a fantasy scholar, I'm always trying to re- reconcile with because um, they, are, you know, they like to present themselves as these sort of, as you say, magicians who are able to convince us of things we should not yeah. be convinced by. And the magic of the film is our ability to to to, to suspend that yeah. idea of disbelief. And I just don't think that I just don't think that quite articulates the complexity of being a film spectator. Because actually, part of the pleasure in a film like Waterworld, or in any kind of fantasy or sci-fi or any kind of you know alternative um, world on screen, is that feeling of of disjunk. You know, because yeah. it shouldn't feel normal. It shouldn't feel believable in the way that life is believable. It should have a certain element of, wow, how did yes. they do that? Um, so the flip side of what you're saying is is that actually not, you know, feeling like you're in the presence of some sort of movie mechanics can often enhance our um, appreciation of the movie yes. as well as pull it away. So it's when moments do one and when moments do the other that's always the fascinating thing to try and unpick. I also think that ties to internal logic, doesn't it? I mean, if, if we're well, talking talking fantasy if it, none of us really believes that mordor exists well i hope not certainly yeah. <laughs> well maybe it does maybe it does uh, but none of us ultimately believes mordor exists and yet the spectacle of the lord of the rings films and the internal logic of them yeah. works you know we know we're getting a piece of fantasy when we go through the door to watch those films and that world holds i'd also say the same with something like uh let's pick a more recent elita battle angel I think the world building in that is absolutely phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. I look at it and I just say, I know this is elevated. I know this isn't real, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But I get the internal logic of the world that you're holding together. Um, And whatever you think of that film, I think the world building in it just strings together and just works. 
So, yeah, I, 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 the spectacle is, I, I think the spectacle a lot of the time is the sale, isn't it? That's what gets you in. You go back to that shot of Independence Day of the White House blowing up, which was a model, wasn't yeah. it? It wasn't even a, it wasn't yeah, even yeah. a, a digital yeah. effect, really. Um, but you were sold on the spectacle. You know, that's what primarily gets you through the door. And obviously you go away and you talk about those spectacle moments and seeing them on a big screen is amazing. Um, but conversely, uh, w- once you start there, it's like two hours, two, two and a half hours. There has to be something a little more. I'm all, I go back to Aquaman, actually, because I remember when um, the first bunch of reviewers came out of, saying Aqu- of seeing Aquaman. And the thing that was popping up on social media is, oh, it's so nuts that there's this bit where an octopus is banging a drum. I was just like, oh, that sounds interesting. And so I watched the film and sure enough, there's an octopus banging a drum in it. But I just thought you've put that moment in to distract from how dull the rest of this film is and to give you know, this 20 second moment that you can talk about to make it sound like it's wacky or it's out there or something like that. And it's just not. It's just not, in my view, I know some people love Aquaman, and if you do, that's great. The, ca- the sort of counter to that one would then, to, to go back to an earlier reference, would be sort of Mad Max Fury Road. Yeah. Where we get that shot of the um, electric guitarist on top yeah. of the... Uh, and oh, just, just... You just sort of go with it. You're like, yes, I, that's the moment you go, I am in. I am all in. You've managed to convince me that the, that is a credible sight within this mm. insane sort of hyperbolic world. So it's a sort of interesting yin and yang to the to the octopus playing a drum. There's some sentence I think I'd say to <laughs> it, it is simple, isn't it? It's like, do you buy it while you're there? That's yeah. it. You know, it doesn't matter how out there it is. And we talk about novelty. I mean, you, you brought up novelty a little bit. And I do think that ties to Toy Story the same year. And you, you can almost see the curve of audience novelty just with the technology in that the first tranche of CG, fully CG movies all made a fortune. Come what may, the Ice Age films were making a fortune. The first DreamWorks films all made a fortune. The first Pixar films all made a fortune. And it was only, but it took about, what, seven, eight years for audience fatigue to really set in with fully CG films. And that's no slight on the films that were successes at the time, but the sheer novelty factor kept those going for a long time. But eventually the novelty tires so I know I've slightly undercut my point there a little bit, but nonetheless, it, it is just this cauldron of lots of little things, really. I, I mean, I have, uh, uh, well, I have a few things. One is that I must be the only person on the planet, and I wasn't going to say this until you mentioned it, but I must be one of the only people on the planet that didn't get Fury Road, and I've just outed myself to the world, uh, or the people that listen. Um, Listeners, you've now listened to the, the final episode of the podcast. Um, it's been a fun run. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I didn't. I, anyway, so I was going to say that um, I was uh, the other point I was going to make was um, about kind of models and believability because there's this, isn't there this the sequence from uh, the second Austin Powers where he goes to blow up the White House and then says, "Oh, actually, that was just a scene from the movie Independence Day, but the real explosion will be a lot like yeah. that," uh, which is really nice. And which the gag is then I think repeated in the new or the I say the new the most recent of the Die Hard movies to go back to that franchise uh, 4.0 where um, there is a model of a building that is it's the same principle. Oh, I think it's a model. It's and Bruce Willis runs around going, no, "Don't worry, it's a model. It's a model," which I quite like as a reflexive gesture to the sort of believability and the credibility of images. Um, the third thing I was going to say was it goes back to your point about computer animated films. And yes, there was a fatigue, and the fatigue was around twenty uh, two thousand five, two thousand six. Chicken Little, wasn't it? That was when it started to set in. Yeah, 
2005 that's the release of that was 2005 it's, it's there was an article in variety which was talking about fatigue and it was it was because 2005 and 2006 um so chicken little cars um over the head it was it was a, around a group of movies that that there was a, i think there was a concentration of of computer animated films that was up on previous years and suddenly we were getting the same old sort of same old so i remember that I remember that moment, that that kind of fatigue. Um, but the point, uh, what I was gonna gonna say that that wasn't anything to do with any of that, uh, and especially nothing to do with Fury Road, which was, um, uh, I think, the part of the reason that for me that the visual effects of Waterworld stood out, as in the digital visual effects stood out for me, was one I was, uh, yeah, you know, the quality of them is what they are. You know, they're kind of cl- a little bit clumsy in some ways, but I just wasn't expecting the digital. I was the, the film had sort of set me up yeah. for these practical weighty effects and and so all my notes are about the film's not digital the film's not digital and then over the page i've got and then a cg shark thing <laughs> yeah. with the marine, and they eat it and then i was like oh so it does have digital effects in it and then the whole i think the final set piece so the the rescue of enola and the destroying of the of the sort of deacon in, in his army really is is um green and blue screen and i think there's a lot of sort of, sort of cg work but i think it just stood out to me not necessarily because of its um, you know what Laura Mulvey would call the clumsy sublime of back projection. I think it was just, I was just not expecting a film that had been so weighty and watery and material and physical, and and to be sort of filtered through these ideas of of actor stamina and fortitude as they they sort of wrangle with these practical sets to suddenly shift its register and and be and be digital in a way I wasn't expecting. I I, I would agree with that. I mean, I, I, there's not an awful lot I can add to that um, because, yeah, I think it's right. I think all of a sudden it changed what it was selling you, really, and, and how it was doing it. And even though those uh, those sequences had some really excellent stunt work in it, yeah, I, it, it just pulled the rug. Um, because I can't add anything to that, I will just go back to your Austin Powers anecdote, though, um, in that you, that, that you say it built up to the White House moment and the White House explosion and was having fun with the idea of spectacle. I don't think any yeah. film has done that better than Spice World the movie, actually. <laughs> Uh, we have covered today. We have covered some topics. Well, it, there's it. a bit in Spice World the movie. I remember laughing like a drain at the cinema uh, when it did it, where, where it's building up to the, this double decker London bus having to jump over Tower Bridge as as the bridge is coming up, and that they they do all these cuts backwards and forwards and say that that's big. That's a, that sounds expensive. And then when it cuts to the actual shot, it just does blatantly blatantly and it's deliberate a toy bus on a toy bridge just doing that just doing the jump i just thought that's a really clever way to subvert all our expectations and to save yourself about five million quid in the process i think on mad max what i would say uh i'm not gonna i'm not gonna argue you on fury road if it didn't work for you it didn't work for you that's cool but if you go back to the road warrior the second mad max movie um, that cost what about six, seven? I don't have the number off the top of my head. I think it was under ten million dollars or something to make. I think that is a more successful narrative film uh, than Waterworld, um, and I think it's doing pretty much the same thing. Um, mm. Waterworld is is heavily derived from the Mad Max films, as we said, um, but the issue uh, the issue of scale and the issue of budgets turned Waterworld into something else. The actual core of it, I would suggest, was done for what about a fifteenth of the price with no water a long time before and more successfully. 
Yeah. I mean, I had. A, I mean, just to, to round things off, I wondered if you could then pick out, given all that we've said and all that you've said about the film and its its sort of um, production and its its aesthetics and its legacy and all that sort of stuff. Is there a particular um, sort of scene or sequence that is for you the the bit that that really you know is is Waterworld for you in a in a nutshell? Um, no, not really. Um, just that um, what we were saying before, really, I, I, I absorbed the action stuff of it. I absorbed the bit where the camera's willing to pull back and let us see these actors and stunt performers running around these enormous sets dragged out into into not quite the middle of the ocean, but far enough of the ocean to, to make you feel a bit sick. Um, and just letting the camera soak that up and then seeing all that on a big screen. And it, it's that degree of spectacle school that always got me with it and so yeah maybe i'll align myself with with that that idea that that first half hour or so and just sitting there and taking it all in but in truth this was a film for all the hour or so of chat we've had about it that sold it to me off the back of two words one of those was kevin and the other was costner and i was in yeah i'm, <laughs> I'm thrilled that we we got a chance to kind of um, certainly, I'm, I, I don't pretend to be. When you were mentioning all the Costner films, both of you at the start, I was thinking my knowledge of Kevin Costner is is terrible, and I I think I've seen Robin Hood, and I uh, I, I saw him in a recent film called Criminal, where he played like a yes, uh, not a, good a brain transplanted into not good. memories or something. Um, but my, I I certainly don't don't pretend to be the Costner aficionado. But Water, so Waterworld was something that I same as the the audiences perhaps at the time. I felt like I knew all about the film having never seen it and so i was really sort of yeah that's interesting well let me let me recommend one for you then um the the one that people don't tend to seek out it's a film called 13 days oh yeah um and we talk about the physicality of of movies uh if you want to look at it from just a sheer physicality point of view it was made on an enormous set I mean, it, it, it is a physical film, as as he, he he tends to make. But this was the story of the Cuban Missile Crisis, mm. and it was a film that he was originally set to direct, but ultimately didn't. It was directed by Roger Donaldson, who also directed a brilliant Costner film called No Way Out oh, yeah. from the eighties. Yeah, yeah. Um, but seek out Thirteen Days and have a look at that because that's the kind of film that only gets made at that scale with a movie star clout. Yeah, and and and, and did well. I like um, I like Donaldson because I'm a big fan of Dante's Peak um, from 1997. Yes. I talked about that earlier today, yeah. Uh, and I've also seen um, The November Man, which is a more recent... Yes, there was supposed to be a sequel to that, um, but the first one virtually disappeared, yeah. which stopped it. It's Pierce Brosnan, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, so yeah, no, I'll, I'll brush up on on, on Costner. Um, Alex, any final thoughts, uh, words? Yeah, yeah, I want to watch <laughs> Twister now. I've been staring at it on my DVD shelf. Twister. But and I bet you, I bet you, if we talk about Twister, there's one moment that will just spring to the top of your head. The cow, which, which yes, which pretty much proves everything we've talked about to a degree for, for the last hour and so. Yeah, it's the cow. One moment. That's it. I'm going to go watch Twister and remind myself whether it's um, uh, it's whether just... it's Bill Paxton or Bill Pullman in it. Um, yeah. that's a cheap. It's quite easy to tell the difference, but for some reason we like it. Uh, Simon, you've been really generous with your time and your knowledge. Um, I'm sure a lot of people already are dis downloading film stories and reading the magazine, but if any of our listeners don't know about the project, um, could you just give them a quick uh, heads up on it? And I'm sure there's lots of, uh, we have a lot of, you know, uh, master's students, uh, PhD students, BA film students who you know, are, I'm sure would be very interested in it. 
Um, briefly then, the podcast is, tells the behind-the-scenes stories of two films every week. I kind of go into it with a view that everyone, uh, lots of people want to tell the story of how Lawrence of Arabia was made. No one wants to tell the story of how Turner and Hooch was made. <laughs> so I approach it with that. I, I, it's very contemporary films and making of stories that I think a lot of the time you could comfortably say aren't the classics, but I still really like them. Uh, I have two print magazines. Film Stories is a monthly film magazine that's built on a bedrock of opportunity, opportunity for people looking to write and get paid for their writing work for the first time um, and also for filmmakers who are looking to get co- independent filmmakers looking to get coverage um, it's it's really a magazine aimed it's a mainstream magazine targeting it slightly towards the smaller rooms of the multiplex where they open you can find that at www.filmstories.co.uk and you can also find there the magazine i do for under 15s that's written by under 15s which is film stories junior and I was going to say, am I right in thinking that you can find both of those, um, or they can follow uh, Film Stories on Twitter as well? Oh yeah, Fil- at Film Stories Pod. It's the least catchy Twitter handle I could possibly get, so I had to Wonderful. have it. You haven't heard ours yet. Um, uh, it's, I would recommend it personally. I, I always um, your one of your episodes is about the length of my tube ride from uh, t- to Waterloo Station on my commutes, and it, it fits perfectly. So I forever associate your voice and have been throughout today, Simon, with with that tube ride, which is making me a little bit wistful in today's uh, climate. But hopefully, so I'll get me it. and dangerous public transport. Got it. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's exactly the sentiment I was trying to express. Thanks. Lovely. Um, okay, uh, you. Th- we have been Fancy Animation. You can find us, of course, at fancy-animation.org or on Twitter, fananim research, F-A-N-A-N-I-M research. That's also our Instagram handle and our Facebook page, so you can check us out there. We will be doing another feel-good fantasy animation next episode, so do get online and give us your suggestions. I will pull some more out of the hat and pick one. Um, for our next show so we are still listening out there we just took a little break uh today to talk about more fun uh 90s 90s blockbusters uh simon thanks so much for coming on the show today pleasure uh we'll be around next time chris as always take care i'll see you then bye